Well, I've been giving thought to what text or what message to share to kick off our conference, and my heart and my thoughts were drawn to Acts chapter 13. So turn with me in your Bible, if you would please, to Acts chapter 13. If you didn't bring a Bible with you this morning, there should be an extra one in the hymn book holders right there in front of you. So grab one of those, and uh, if you're seated near the front, that's underneath the seat is where you'll find those hymn book holders. There is an outline on the back of your bulletin if you find that helpful in going down through the points of the message. And then inserted into the bulletin a set of study notes to help you follow along by asking a series of questions. So whatever uh, materials you use to help you get the most out of God's Word, then uh, gather those things now as we prepare to study together and learn and meditate and respond together. I want us to focus our attention on the first examples of workers, outreach partners, being sent an outreach activity in the New Testament, some of the the very first example, to see what principles we can glean for our own situation here in the 21st century. So Acts chapter 13 is where we will be, and uh, I invite you to follow along as I read the first 12 verses of this chapter, though we won't get through all of those. I want us to read all of them so we have a feel for this very first event in sending outreach partners. Acts chapter 13, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus, and when they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John as their assistant. Now when they had gone through the island to Paphos, they found a certain sorcerer, a false prophet, a Jew, whose name was Bar-Jesus, who was with the proconsul Sergius Paulus, an intelligent man. This man called for Barnabas and Saul and sought to hear the word of God. But Elimas, the sorcerer, for so his name is translated, withstood them, seeking to turn the proconsul away from the faith. Then Saul, who is also called Paul, filled with the Holy Spirit, looked intently at him, And said, O full of all deceit and all fraud, you son of the devil, you enemy of all righteousness, will you not cease perverting the straight ways of the Lord? And now indeed the hand of the Lord is upon you, and you shall be blind not seeing the sun for a time. And immediately a dark mist fell on him, and he went around seeking someone to lead him by the hand. Then the proconsul believed When he saw what had been done, being astonished at the teaching of the Lord. Well, since we are jumping into the middle of a book and into the middle of a long story that is delineated in the book of Acts, allow me to mention some background so that we can get a running start to this chapter of Scripture. This is a major turning point in the book of Acts in several ways, and let me mention some of them. For one thing, Peter basically disappears from the scene. 
except for a brief appearance in chapter 15. Now that is huge because Peter has been the dominant figure in this book thus far. In chapter 1, he led the church in the replacement of Judas. In chapter 2, he preached a powerful sermon on the day of Pentecost, and about 3,000 individuals were saved, came to faith in Jesus Christ, and were baptized. In chapter 3, he healed the lame man, and he preached another powerful sermon. In chapter 4, he confronted the Sanhedrin. In chapter 5, he confronted Ananias and Sapphira for their hypocrisy. In chapter 8, he dealt with Simon the sorcerer. In chapter 9, he healed Aeneas and raised Dorcas from the dead. In chapter 10, he took the gospel to the Gentiles by preaching to Cornelius and his household. In chapter 11, he explained to the Jewish believers, the Jewish Christians, that God is saving Gentiles as well. And then in chapter 12, he was miraculously released from prison. So clearly, Peter has been the dominant figure in the book of Acts thus far, but no longer. The Holy Spirit now shifts the spotlight from Peter to Paul. In chapters 13 through 28 of the book of Acts, there is not one single chapter in which Paul is not the central figure. Now, I know I used a double negative there, so let me just say it the positive way. In every chapter from here on out, Paul is the central figure. He is the dominant figure in every chapter from this point on. So that's one major change in the book of Acts as we jump into chapter 13. Another major change we begin to see is the shift from the Jerusalem church being the headquarters for ministry to the church at Antioch being the headquarters for ministry. For the first 12 chapters of Acts, it is the church in Jerusalem that occupies center stage. The church in Jerusalem was the mother church, and it was almost exclusively Jewish. But as we jump into chapter 13, the church at Antioch begins to move towards center stage. The church at Antioch was about 300 miles north of the church in Jerusalem. We are introduced to the church at Antioch back in chapter 11. So back up just a couple chapters, a couple pages, to chapter 11, and let me introduce you to the church at Antioch. Chapter 11, verse 19. It says, Now those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, preaching the word to no one but the Jews only. But some of them were men from Cyprus and Cyrene, who when they had come to Antioch, spoke to the Hellenists, that is, non-Jewish, Greek-speaking, Greek-cultured people, preaching the Lord Jesus. This is the first full-scale ministry to Gentiles in the book of Acts and in the history of the church. This is it. It would be very easy to read over that verse and just say, oh, okay, so they kind of had a little change there. No, this is huge. This is a major change. Full-scale ministry to Gentiles. Jewish people are not in focus at this point. Verse 21, And the hand of the Lord was with them, and a great number believed and turned to the Lord. Then news of these things came to the ears of the church in Jerusalem. And they sent out Barnabas to go as far as as Antioch. Now back in chapter 8, the church had sent Peter and John 
to check on what was happening among the Samaritans as they began to hear the word of God and respond to it. This time the church sent Barnabas. He would have been a perfect fit because of his heart for the Lord and his heart for people. Barnabas was an encourager. In fact, Barnabas wasn't even his real name. It was a nickname given to him because the word Barnabas means encourager. This man was such an encourager. That's exactly the kind of person these new believers needed. And verse 23 tells us, Then Barnabas departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. He went to go get Saul. Or oh, I'm sorry, that was down in verse 25. Verse 23, when he came and had seen the grace of God, he was glad and encouraged them all that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. So Barnabas saw God's grace in the lives of these people in Antioch who manifested that grace by what characterized their lives. And Dr. Luke tells us that made him glad. He was thrilled to see their response to the word of God. So he encouraged them that with purpose of heart they should continue with the Lord. Verse 24, For he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit, and of faith, and a great many people were added to the Lord. If you don't realize how important a ministry of encouragement is, just look at that last phrase in this verse. The Holy Spirit specifically links that thought with Barnabas' ministry of encouragement. A great many people were added to the Lord. May God give us more men and women like Barnabas. He loved the Lord. He loved people. He was an encourager. Thus, God used him greatly to see many others come to faith in Jesus Christ. And then verse 25 tells us, Barnabas then departed for Tarsus to seek Saul. And here we see another great characteristic in the life of Barnabas. We see his humility. Because he realized he needed help. He needs someone who could help him with his ministry. Someone more capable in teaching. So he went to get Saul, or Paul as we know him, to help him. Barnabas wasn't threatened by that. He didn't have to be the star. He didn't have to be in the limelight. He didn't have to be up front. He was more concerned that the Lord's work get done than with who got the credit. That's a very godly perspective. Very godly attitude. So Barnabas went to get Saul, or Paul, in Tarsus, who had been there by this point about 10 years. You'll remember that the Lord had specifically chosen Saul for Gentile ministry. Back in chapter 9, when Saul was on the road to Damascus, and Jesus intercepted him and knocked him to the ground, and, and Saul came to faith in Jesus Christ, the Lord told Saul at that point that he would have a significant ministry to Gentiles. So when Barnabas wanted to get someone to help him with this first Gentile church, the first person who came to his mind was Saul. I need to go get Saul. This is what the Lord saved him to do, to minister to Gentiles. So he goes to get Saul. Verse 26 says, And when he found him, he brought him to Antioch. So it was that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. And the disciples were first called Christians in Antioch. Paul and Barnabas, for a whole year, taught the people the Word of God. And evidently, the people took seriously the things they were taught and put them into practice in their lives. We know that because the last phrase in this verse says, they were called Christians. Others knew they were followers of Christ by the way they lived. This is another reminder, beloved, that God's reputation is connected with His people. 
That's why it's a serious thing to call ourselves Christians. We represent Jesus Christ by that title, by that name. 2 Timothy 2.19 says, Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. If you name the name of Christ, you represent Him. If we bear the name Christian, which means little Christ, then our character better match the name we bear. It's sad to have to say this, but it would be better for some Christians or some professing Christians to hide their religious profession because of the way they live. Their lives cause the name of Christ to be mocked and scorned by the people around them. Along these same lines, I think it's significant that these believers didn't call themselves Christians. They were called Christians. They didn't have to go around announcing that they were Christians. The people of Antioch, the people around them, knew that these folks were Christians by the way they lived, by their character. And so in verse 27 we read, And in in these days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch. And one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. Then the disciples, each according to his ability, determined to send relief to the brethren dwelling in Judea. Thus they also did and sent it to the elders by the hands of Barnabas and Saul. Now this is a switch. Notice what is being said here. The mother church, the church in Jerusalem, is being ministered unto by this new church in Antioch. The genuineness of their Christianity was seen by their giving hearts as Paul and Barnabas established them in the truth. When they heard this prophet say there was going to be a great famine, they said, well, we need to help those people. We need to help those believers there in Jerusalem. So they gathered a gift and they sent it by the hands of Paul and Barnabas to the elders. So that's the church at Antioch. And that's the church from which Paul and Barnabas were sent in our text in chapter 13. So go back over to chapter 13. So Paul and the church at Antioch replace Peter and the church in Jerusalem as the focus of chapters 13 through 28. Related to this is the fact that Gentiles are much more in focus for ministry in chapters 13 through 28. These chapters that we're jumping into right now, the the very first of these chapters, chapter 13, these chapters record the spread of the gospel of Jesus Christ to the ends of the earth. You will remember that back in chapter 1, verse 8 of the book of Acts, Jesus indicated that the apostles' ministry would spread geographically, beginning in Jerusalem, then into Judea and Samaria, and then to the end of the earth. Well, that is exactly what happens in this book. The spread of the Word of God in Jerusalem is covered by Dr. Luke in chapter 1, verse 1 through chapter 8, verse 4. That's the spread of the Word of God in Jerusalem. The spread of the Word of God in Judea and Samaria is covered in chapter 8, verse 5 through chapter 12, verse 25. And then the spread of the Word of God to the end of the earth is covered in chapters 13 through 28. Here's another way to look at this book, the book of Acts as a whole. The events of chapters 1 through 7 took place over a period of approximately two years. So chapters 1 through 7 
cover two years. That's what you could call phase one. Then phase two section, which is chapters 8 through 12, covers a period of approximately 13 years. Then chapters 13 through 28 cover a time span of about 14 years. So if you add it all up, the book of Acts covers a time span of approximately 30 years. You could just use round numbers from A.D. 30 to A.D. 60. That's approximate, approximately 30 years recorded in the book of Acts. The final 14 years are focused on Paul's ministry to the Gentiles. You may remember that in Galatians 2, Paul mentions that God had called him to be the apostle to the Gentiles. Our apostle. The apostle to the Gentiles, just like Peter was the apostle to the Jews. And this is the beginning of Paul's monumental ministry to the Gentiles. You could almost say it this way, beloved. This chapter begins the domino effect that eventually comes to you and to me as Gentiles. This is where it all began, right here in Acts 13. And notice how it starts. Verse 1 tells us, Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who was called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. Here in verse 1, Luke mentions, Dr. Luke, who wrote the book of Acts, mentions that the church in Antioch had a leadership team of five men. They are referred to in this verse as prophets and teachers. According to Ephesians 2.20, and we don't have time to turn over there, you can just jot it down, but according to Ephesians 2.20, the apostles and prophets were foundational to the church. That means that they were critical at the very beginning stage of the growth of the church, but being the foundation, they're no longer present in our day and age. Today, there are no apostles and prophets in the technical sense of the term according to Ephesians 2.20. Now, there are men who are sent out to do ministry, which is what the term apostle means. The, The Greek word apostle literally means a sent one. So there are apostles with a small a, if you will, in the non-technical sense of the term. But, but there aren't any New Testament apostles with a capital A who meet the requirements of New Testament apostleship as presented in 1 Corinthians 9. So no apostles today in that sense, in the 1 Corinthians 9 sense. Neither are there prophets today in the New Testament sense of the term. Now again, we use this word. We say, oh, so-and-so is a real prophet in in our day or whatever. Yes, we recognize in a non-technical sense there are men who proclaim the word of God and there are men who call people to repentance, call the the people of God to repentance. So you could call them prophets in a non-technical sense with a small p, Just as long as you understand the distinction between them and New Testament prophets. The New Testament prophets who were foundational of the church received direct revelation from God that was passed on to the church. Most of that information was directly related to how the people should live. Now the reason why I want to stress this point is because whenever we hear the word prophet we immediately think of someone who predicts the future. But that was not the major emphasis of the ministry of the prophets in the first century. There are only two occasions in the New Testament 
where a prophet predicted the future. The prophets did far more forthtelling than they did foretelling. To say it another way, they did far more preaching of God's will for the people's lives and teaching the people of God than they did predicting the future. Verse 1 also refers to men who were teachers in the church. According to Ephesians 4, 11, and 12, this is a role in the church that has not passed off the scene like the role of the apostles and prophets. This continues on today as part and parcel of what the church is all about. Back in chapter 11, we saw what Paul and Barnabas did with the church at Antioch. You remember verse 26 of that chapter says that for a whole year they assembled with the church and taught a great many people. That was the priority of this first Gentile church. By the way, it's the same thing that ought to be a priority in every church because it is the foundational function of the church. To illustrate that point, consider this. In the Gospels, Jesus is called a preacher 11 times and he is called a teacher 45 times. That's in the Gospels. A preacher 11 times, a teacher 45 times. That shows us the emphasis of Jesus' ministry. Yes, he preached to multitudes, but the emphasis was teaching people the Word of God. That's what characterized the church at Antioch. They had prophets and teachers who proclaimed and explained the Word of God. Luke tells us who these men were. First in the list, notice there, is Barnabas. He was a Jew from Cyprus, And we saw a little portrait of him back in chapter 11. He was the man who was an example to the Jewish church in Jerusalem because of his gracious giving to the Lord's work. We also know, as we saw earlier, he was a great encourager of people. So he was an example in his giving to the Lord, and he was an example in his ministry to others. The next man in the list is Simeon called Niger. The the term Niger is a Latin nickname which probably indicates that he moved in Roman circles. Also, since the nickname means dark, it probably indicates that he was African. And if he was, then it is possible, and I only say possible, we can't say for sure, but it's possible that this is the same man who carried the cross of Jesus, as mentioned in Luke chapter 23, when Jesus could not bear his cross any further. The next man in the list is Lucius of Cyrene. The name is probably Gentile, and he is identified by his country, Cyrene. It's the same country the man was from who carried the cross of Jesus. The next man in this list is Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. Dr. Luke tells us that interesting fact about him. Manaen, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch. The word that is translated brought up literally means that he was Herod's foster brother. Now, understand who who this is or was. This is not the Herod who died in chapter 12 and was eaten by worms. You know, the Herod who gave the great speech, and they said, the voice of a God and not a man, the voice of a God. And because he didn't give glory to God, he was smitten. He died being eaten by worms, etc. No, that was Herod Agrippa. This Herod is Herod Antipas. Herod Antipas was the man who beheaded John the Baptist, and he was the man who treated our Lord so shamefully 
at his trial when Pilate didn't know what to do and he heard Herod Antipas was in town so he shipped Jesus over to Herod Antipas for a while. That's this man. It's fascinating to realize that one man in the court, Manaen, became a believer in Jesus Christ, a committed disciple, and the other man, Herod, became an antagonist, a scoffer. But isn't that the way it is? I mean, isn't that the way the Lord works? God has his people in all levels of society, in all facets of society. If you piece the information together about Manaen, it seems that he was in his early 60s. And the reason why I mention that is because that would indicate that there was quite an age span between Manaen and the next man in this list, Saul. This is the man we know as the Apostle Paul. Saul was his Jewish name, but because the Lord gave him a ministry to Gentiles and he traveled in Roman circles, he went by his Gentile name, Paul. When the Lord struck Saul down on the road to Damascus, the Lord told him that he was going to have a significant ministry to the Gentiles, and now it's about to begin. So this church had a leadership team of five leaders who were from different nationalities, different backgrounds, different cultural upbringing. What a beautiful picture of diversity and unity. And beloved, this is the way it ought to be. This is, this is exactly how it should be. The leadership of the church has to manifest unity so the rest of the church can follow the same example and the same pattern. That's what we see here in verse 1. Then verse 2 tells us, As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Notice the very first phrase in that verse, they ministered to the Lord. We, we might have expected Dr. Luke to say, as they ministered to the people, as they ministered to the congregation, as they ministered to the body, but that's not what he says. They ministered to the Lord. Why does he word it that way? Because ministry is first and foremost unto the Lord. If you don't get anything else out of that message, get out of this message, get that. Ministry is first and foremost to the Lord. We, beloved, the way we should live our lives, whatever God has called you to be or do in life, you should live it as unto the Lord. And then more specifically, if you're involved in some kind of uh, ministry position, if you teach a Sunday school class or you lead a Bible study or you lead a flock group or you work in some kind of ministry, you need to see that as unto the Lord. It will make a difference in the quality of the job we do if we see it as unto the Lord. When I prepare my messages, this is not an uncommon question I get. People say, well, you know, Brian, it's such a diverse congregation, so who do you have in mind when you're preparing your messages? Who are you thinking about? You know, who's your target audience? And I don't want to sound, you know, like super spiritual, but the fact is I don't think about anybody. I think about the Lord. Lord, what is, this, what is your word saying? I want to be clear with it. I want to understand it. I, it's not people. It's your word, Lord. And your word is going to speak to people if I'm accurate with it and clear with it. So when I minister, I have to constantly remind myself that it's for the Lord and not for people. You see, people have their expectations of you and of me and of all of us. And those may or may not be the Lord's expectations. 
So we serve the Lord first and foremost, and by doing so, we will minister to people. But when our focus becomes people, we may not be serving the Lord. That is, when our focus becomes people, we may not be doing what the Lord wants us to do if we're people-pleasing. Colossians 3.23 says, Whatever you do, do it heartily as to the Lord and not unto men. That's our focus. That's why Dr. Luke words it this way. These men were ministering to the Lord. But verse 2 also says they were fasting. What is that? Fasting is setting aside the eating of food because of a desire to focus on the Lord without hindrance, and it was almost always associated with sorrow or some kind of burden or passion. Fasting was almost always associated with sorrow or some kind of burden or intense passion, during which time the person going through this would decline food. Now, in biblical times, there were three kinds of fasting. Number one, there was a partial fast where just enough food was eaten to maintain sustenance. Secondly, there was also a non-feasting kind of fast. This is when an individual would eat regular meals but would not go to a feast or a banquet of any kind in his, in his community. You see, food in large measure, if you think about their culture, food was their entertainment. And there are times when you are going through a difficulty or you're burdened about something or there's just some intense passion in your heart and you just don't feel like going to any kind of feast or banquet or celebration. And then a third kind of fasting that was practiced was total fasting. Sometimes during a total fast, the individual would drink water but eat no food. So those were the three kinds of fasts. And whenever a person would fast... Instead of eating or preparing food, he or she would use that time to pray. Fasting in the Bible is always connected with prayer, and, a, and specifically with prayer when you are especially burdened about something or there is some intense passion that's driving you. You see, there are times in life when you are so burdened about something or so focused on something that food is non-appealing. Instead, the burden is far stronger of a drive in your life than food. I can think of a couple times in the past when I fasted to pray about issues in my life. One time was when I was praying about what school to go for, to go to for training for ministry. I wanted to make sure that, that I went where I could best be trained to serve the Lord, so I fasted and prayed. Another time when I was working through the issue of whether or not the Lord was leading Bev and me to be married, I fasted to seek the Lord's will for our lives. Fasting, that's the function that fasting, or the role that it plays as you see in Scripture. But here's an interesting fact about fasting. It's interesting to note that the Bible never commands us to fast. Never. The Jewish people in the Old Testament were commanded to fast only on one occasion. They were commanded to fast on Yom Kippur, the Day of Atonement. That's it. But in the New Testament, it's not something we are ever commanded to do but when we do it, Jesus gave instructions about how we are to do it. Back up to Matthew's Gospel, chapter 6. The very first book of the New Testament, the first Gospel account. Chapter 6, verse 16. Jesus said, Moreover, 
When you fast, do not be like the hypocrites with a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces that they may appear to men to be fasting. Assuredly, I say to you, they have their reward. But you, when you fast, anoint your head and wash your face so that you do not appear to men to be fasting, but to your Father who is in the secret place, and your Father who sees in secret will will reward you. So Jesus cautioned that fasting is not something we take pride in if we do it or when we do it. It's something between us and the Lord as we seek Him with an earnest heart, especially during times of great difficulty or burden or intense passion of some kind. Skip over to chapter 9 of this same gospel, Matthew chapter 9, verse 14. It says, Then the disciples of John, that would be John the baptizer, then the disciples of John came to Jesus saying, Why do we and the Pharisees fast often, but your disciples do not fast? And Jesus said to them, Can the friends of the bridegroom mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom will be taken away from them, and then they will fast. So here we see again that Jesus says, well, why would they fast when I'm with them? If fasting is is usually a reflection of burden or sorrow or something like that, hey, I'm here. They don't need to fast. So here we see that fasting is sometimes associated with mourning or sorrow. But not only that, Jesus fasted for 40 days to begin his public ministry. You, you are familiar with that. That's when he was tempted by the devil. Matthew 4, Luke 4. The zeal and burden in his heart was so overwhelming as he prepared for his ministry that he gladly chose to forsake eating as he prepared his heart and mind for his ministry. We see a similar thing in Acts 14, 23 when the elders uh, were chosen for leadership in the church in that setting. Fasting took place as those men were about to take their serious responsibility of overseeing the church of God. So that's a, a quick look at fasting to give us some background on what is going on in our text in Acts chapter 13. Let's go back there to that text in Acts 13. So Dr. Luke tells us in verse 2 that when these five leaders, these five men, as they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. So while they were praying and fasting, the Holy Spirit spoke. How did he speak? I believe he spoke through one of the prophets mentioned back in verse 1. We see an example of this in chapter 11. We read earlier in chapter 11, verse 27, it says, In those days prophets came from Jerusalem to Antioch, and one of them named Agabus stood up and showed by the Holy Spirit that there was going to be a great famine throughout all the world, which also happened in the days of Claudius Caesar. So that is an example of one of the times when a prophet gave direct revelation from the Lord, and that's the same thing we see here in chapter 13. The Lord gave them direct revelation and said, separate Barnabas and Saul. I have a unique, a, a unique task for those two men. Verse 3 tells us, Then, having fasted and prayed and laid hands on them, they sent them away. Notice again, they fasted, 
before sending them off to their ministry. This is the pattern Jesus followed before beginning his ministry. And it's the pattern the elders followed in Acts chapter 14 before they began their ministry. And it's the same pattern here in chapter 13. Barnabas and Saul, as well as the rest of the leaders, knew that this was a very significant and serious undertaking to which God had called them. So before they got underway, before they headed out, they fasted and prayed that the Lord's hand would be with them. And then they sent them away. And think about this. I mean, just think about this this story. They sent away two of their spiritual leaders. They sent away two of their guys. Why did the Holy Spirit choose Barnabas and Paul? Why two of their most gifted leaders? Why not someone else from the church other than these leaders? The Holy Spirit chose Barnabas and Paul because he knows something about ministry that maybe we have failed to learn. Paul and Barnabas were chosen to do foreign field work because they were already heavily involved in ministry and effective in ministry in their home church. Beloved, it's very important that we understand that we don't send people to the foreign field to learn from scratch how to do ministry. That is completely backwards. We send people to the foreign field who are already involved in ministry and effective in ministry. After all, how can someone do ministry in another culture, a foreign culture, if he can't do ministry in his own culture? How can someone do ministry in a cross-cultural setting if he hasn't learned to apply the principles of Scripture for ministry in his own cultural setting? I believe this is an area the church in America has almost missed entirely. The Holy Spirit understands something about ministry that many churches don't understand, many people don't understand, and it is this. If someone can't or won't do ministry in his own home setting, sending him overseas doesn't change a thing. It doesn't all of a sudden make a super worker out of him because he's been sent overseas. We need to take this seriously. The the Holy Spirit instructed this church to send two men who had proven themselves in ministry. Another problem related to this today is that sadly, we often send workers from so many spiritually weak churches. As a result, when the workers go out and they begin to do ministry, they, frankly, they don't have a clear understanding of what the finished product should look like. The only example, and it's sad that this is the case, but the only example many outreach partners have ever seen is of spiritually deficient churches and spiritually deficient Christians. This is not an uncommon scenario. You will, you will find someone, there are so many workers out on the field who come from churches where they're the only, I don't know how else to say it, maybe they're the only spiritually minded person in the whole church. So they think, oh, I should go to the mission field. So that church says, yeah, go, we'll send them out. But they don't have, they don't have any idea what, what the finished product should look like because of the church that they're sent from and the whole atmosphere there. As a result, they oftentimes inadvertently import the same low characteristics on the mission field. I'll never forget 
years ago hearing what one Christian leader in the Philippines said when he indicted the church in America by saying this. He says, you are importing your spiritual problems here by sending us your workers. Now that's something to think about. So the Holy Spirit specifically chose Barnabas and Saul. Then the leaders prayed for them, laid hands on them, and sent them away. Laying on of hands was a, was a picture of backing and support. It's, hey, we're behind you. We're with you. They were telling Saul and Barnabas that they would be praying for them, that they were here. They would sort of hold the rope, if you will. By the way, this was not a way to impart the Holy Spirit to them. As some would suggest, this was not a way to fill them with the Holy Spirit because we've already been told in the book of Acts that both of these men were already filled with the Holy Spirit. Acts 9.17 says Saul was, and Acts 11.24 says Barnabas was. So this was symbolic. This was not a way to give them the Holy Spirit, fill them with the Holy Spirit. And this was symbolic to symbolize support, backing, prayer, etc. But what an exciting day. I mean, think about what we're reading about here. What an exciting day this must have been, and what a thrill to look back to see when God started reaching to the ends of the earth with the gospel of Jesus Christ that eventually reached you and me. Aren't you glad it did? I am thrilled that it did. As I said, this is the, this is the first domino, if you will, in this long chain of dominoes that eventually came to you and to me, the gospel of Jesus Christ that changes lives. But you know something? Please hear this. As important as foreign work is, and it's extremely important. I would never want to diminish it. As important as foreign work is, it isn't the only service to the Lord. We look back at this event and we say, boy, wouldn't it be exciting to be chosen by the Lord or chosen by the Lord like Barnabas and Saul were? Well, listen, beloved. If you're a Christian, if you're a child of God, you have been chosen by the Lord. You've been chosen to serve the Lord, whether it's right here or abroad. You have been chosen to serve the Lord. So as Colossians 3.23 says, whatever you do, do it as unto the Lord. Because serving the Lord isn't only something that's done across the ocean. It's a lot of times done right across the aisle, right across the street, right across wherever it happens to be. So don't, please, whatever you do, don't take this message, this week, this conference, as a way of, of thinking that all that's important or the only thing that's important is people who go overseas. That would be a tragedy. You and I, wherever God has placed us, are to serve. Let's bow as we close. As you bow your head in closing this morning and think about our gathering together this morning, the, not only the message but the entire service, just remind you of the verse I quoted back during the, at the end of the flag ceremony. John 3, 16, For God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him should not perish but have everlasting life. That is a glorious promise that applies to you, if you live in America, if you live in the Philippines, if you live in Africa, if you live in Europe, God so loved the world. That's you. And the promise is that if you will believe in Jesus Christ, if you will embrace Jesus Christ, 
If you will receive Him, you can have eternal life. So Maybe this is the first time you've ever heard the gospel in that simple form. Or maybe you've heard it many times before. But this is the beginning of our global outreach conference, but we would, we would never want to neglect and just th- think only about people overseas, neglect people right here in our own backyard. So maybe that's you. Maybe you're here today and you've never responded to the gospel. You've never responded to the offer of salvation in Jesus Christ. I would urge you to humble yourself before the Lord right now as a little child and in simple childlike faith Call out to Jesus Christ to save you, to forgive you, to change you, and to grant you his salvation. And if you're here today and you are a child of God, then remember, you've been chosen by the Lord to serve. Serve the Lord. Whatever he's called you to. If you're a student, serve the Lord as a a student. If you're in business, serve the Lord in business. If you're in your neighborhood, just wherever the Lord has placed you to be salt and light, serve the Lord. Don't you dare assume that the only kind of service that is important is something done overseas. Serve the Lord with your life, however he's called you to do that. Father, thank you for a wonderful time together this morning. Encouraging, challenging, thank you for uh, all of the different elements of our our corporate worship gathering this morning, and then our time in the Word. Thank you for this tremendous story, the start, the beginning of the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it really amazes us to think that this is where it all began and eventually reached us. And we need to keep the, the, the chain going. We need to be a link in the chain to the, to the, the person, the next person in the, the, the row, the next person in the chain, so that the gospel continues to spread from us to people around us and people all around the world. Thank you again for the privilege that you grant us as a church family to spread the word of God in Bozeman, in Montana, in the U.S., and around the world. May we do so faithfully until Jesus comes, in whose name we pray. Amen.